how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. To infinity and beyond! Some people without brains do an awful lot of talking, don't they? It's classified. You talking to me? I could tell you, but then I'd have to kill you. I can't lie! Expecto Patronum! Entertainment X. You never know what you're going to get. For this episode, I sit down and chat with Neil Berg. Neil is a composer, lyricist, and producer. He's worked on countless projects and has created countless more. We discuss his drive, what really gets him moving, going, keeping going, and the balance of work life with family and uh, his passion. This is a fantastic conversation that's wide-ranging. I really enjoyed having a conversation with him, and I hope you enjoy listening to it. Keep on keeping on. We're back. I'm Clayton Howe, and today with me is Neil Berg on the phone. Neil, how you doing? I'm doing fantastic, Clay. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. I'm in Pensacola, an hour difference. I'm so glad to be in Florida. I've been too far in the north for too long. <laughs> and you're up yeah, you're well, up near New York, right? I am. I have a little break from my uh from my national tour from my you know hundred years of Broadway and fifty years of rock and roll tour. So but I'm back out on the road uh next week. So I'll be down in Florida not too long from now. Oh, that's amazing. How long have you been on the road for and when do you finish up? Well, that's, you know, th this tour, to be honest with you, the 100 Years of Broadway tour, we started about 16 years ago. <laughs> oh, my. And uh, we were told, I mean, it became a big hit, and we were told we were going to get three years out of it, and it's been 16 years. So, but it's not all like a, a national tour like what you're doing. It's, uh, you know, we'll go out for, you know, two weeks here, and then, you know, four days there, and then a month so it's uh, it's not concurrent, but it's uh, it's been incredible. What I want to I want to talk a little bit about um, that for a moment. What was your what was your journey to joining that? How did you how did you become a part of it? Well, you know, the hundred years of Broadway is it's a very simple concept, actually. You know, it's just you know five Broadway stars, people who starred in Broadway shows, and I produced it and created it and put it together. Really, uh, a long time ago, back when I was in college. Because uh, I was able to, I was the musical director. I didn't need to find somebody to to uh, play for the show, and I was a writer, so I wrote everything. Uh, and I was the host because I'm a performer. So it was, you know, back then it was to raise money for you know our local dorm so we can get ice cream. But then I took it into the private uh, after I graduated from college. I was asked to be the um, MD for the Leukemia Society event at the Marriott Marquis in New York City with all these big stars, all the big soap stars and Broadway stars at the time. And what happened was I, I realized quickly, I, I went in just as the piano player, but all the stars didn't have time. They just came in and wanted to sing and get out of there. So I basically, you know, became the uh, default producer of the event. You know, I, I put everything together. I arranged everything uh, rehearsed everything. And finally, you know, really it all fell to me and it was an incredible experience. So, um, you know, so we started some, and somebody saw me do that and asked me if I would put one of these Broadway concerts together for a, uh, a big, uh, you know, industrial event as they called them back in the day for a big company. And so I started doing it for big companies, you know, for IBM and Goldman Sachs and 
I couldn't believe, you know, the, the, you know how much you would get paid for one of those. <laughs> yeah. And then it was so successful that uh, I wanted to take it. Uh, I, I knew it would do well on the tour. I, I knew it in playing in the Broadway houses and the performing centers just because of the reaction we always got. And I then was able to partner up with Adam Friedson, uh, who was at the time producing one of the musicals I had written because I have two careers. Right. So this is my concert career. Right. And uh, he had been producing the Ballet Folklorico uh, of Mexico, which is basically the Alvin Alley dance of Mexico. And finally, we were able to get it into you know the touring circuit. And once we got it into the touring circuit in America, it exploded. And so we went to, you know, we were doing, you know, a hundred shows a year. And like I said, we were, it was, it was mind boggling. And we, at the beginning, like I said, we, we, we didn't know what we had for real. I knew it was, I knew, I thought it would be well received, but the way the, the general public received it was like nothing I had seen before. They just went crazy because of the nostalgia and what these songs meant. And, and you know, all of a sudden, you know, we three years became 16 years and running. And uh, throughout that time, uh, two years ago, I had to change up the show, you know, meaning I, I wanted to have a new product. And I'm also a rock and roll musician by trade. So I put together the history of rock and roll. And that's now taking the same trajectory. And we're probably doing more of the rock and roll shows over the last two years than the Broadway shows. Uh, and then one other thing I'll, I'll tell you, which is amazing. You know, look, I, I love Sondheim. I love the cut songs. I love, you know, uh, you know, uh, multitudes of Amy that was cut from company. You know, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm a purist, you know. But when I put the show together, I want to put a show together for my mother. People who love music, musicals. And, uh, you know, they, they don't know who Jason Robert Brown is. They, they don't know who Brian Loudermilk is. They don't know what, you know, names. So it's, it's, it was really a chance to do a history lesson and give a kind of greatest hits with the actual people who starred in those shows. So I'm, you know, using people who were the Phantoms and starred in Les Mis and Wicked and everything else. And for the most part, all these performers are, are great friends of mine. So, uh, you know, I, I'm not really doing the material that, that I would, I would go to see down at Joe's pub, but you know, I, I knew what my market was and uh, it's been incredibly successful. And I'm also every once in a while able to sneak in a song like I just mentioned. So, you know, people can get educated on what's going on now. Yeah. That's beautiful. That's yeah. I jumping into, jumping into these concerts, you know, falling into them and creating them. Was there a, thought process on taking a risk or was this all just a given in your mind you know did was there self-talk well you know think about it i've I've been creating these since i was in college and for me to be honest with you um it it was a no-brainer anybody who knows me really well and for a long time knows i've been doing this since college all my college friends know i've been doing this so it's not like you know I, i i just for me it was just a concept of I, I grew up outside of New York City, and I always wondered why, oh why aren't there concerts like this from my mother, you know that don't have huge orchestras that you know they were maybe Lincoln Center, but why aren't they out there, you know? And then I always thought if the audience knew 
some information without being talked down to. Oh, but basically, like they were in my living room and they were at a big party and they were included. So it wasn't stuffy. It was very conversational. So they felt like they were included, not being talked at right. like old school concerts. Um, I always thought it would translate. And, and that's, you know, it, it's one of those rare occurrences where it, it played out exactly how I always thought it would. That doesn't happen usually. It happened in this case. So, yeah. Uh, and I think that the, the, the thing was to always remember my mother <laughs> and yeah. her friends, which really make up 99% of the ticket buying audience. <laughs> and There's a lot of friends, you know, I remember, <laughs> I remember talking to, you know, uh, Daryl Roth, big Broadway producer, who's yeah. a you know, colleague and friend. And she, people had no idea in New York what I was doing out on the road for all this time. They didn't pay attention. And they, when they finally saw what was going on, they were, Oh my gosh, you know, sometimes the best ideas are the simplest. Yeah. So, uh, and I, I think people also realize I, I, you know, I never knew this as I was doing it. People were telling me it, but I'm kind of, you know, I was a jock growing up who also loved Broadway. And back in the day, that wasn't always the case. And I was a New Yorker. So I sound like a New Yorker. I look like a New Yorker. Yeah. So when I'm around, when I'm around the country, people identify that with Broadway in New York. So it was, Without knowing it, it was I kind of had a handicap in a good way, um, because you know, you know, I was just very conversational, and I, I seemed like a guy they can all relate to. Yeah, yeah, it's almost like a, a character in, in a way of New York, right? And I'm a, and I am a terrible actor. I'm not an actor. You're right. right. So I always tell people, you know, so I and, and but I'm really good at being me, and right. so I I think that's a great lesson. You know, I, I when I'm up there, I'm you know I'm talking the whole show but i'm i'm me i'm a I'm heightened version of me basically me right what are your what are your views on relationships in the industry professional relationships now that you've cross pollinated with so many different people essentially well when you say professional relationships i can i mean i could go let's run the gamut let's get a little more specific because you know, I always, I always swore. Let's go personal relationships first. Sure. sure. You know, I, I dated, I dated an actress in college, and um, and I got my heart broken, and I swore up and down I would never date another actress. You know, <laughs> one of those things because I was hurt, and I never did uh, for about ten years, and then finally I was playing softball in the Broadway Show League. I went to college to play baseball, so I was basically a ringer for uh you know this phantom of the opera softball team and because uh, my buddies were in it and one of the actresses came in from the road who was playing christine Daye, and i fell in love and uh, you know that was it uh, you know I, I pursued until she couldn't deny me and so i married you know my, my wife rita harvey who's a great broadway actress and so that's a right. personal relationship but you know if you're the professional relationships are very interesting because I use a lot of friends in my shows. Right. I'll use a lot of people who I know and I've never really had to audition like a long time ago. I auditioned once just to kind of, just to see what was out there. People I maybe didn't know. And, right. um, and, and it's, and it's great because there's trust and you, you know, you adore these people, but it's a marriage after 16 years. You can imagine it's like anything else. And since I'm the one in charge, you know, sometimes, you know, and, and the buck stops with me. Right. It, you know, it, anytime there's a, a position where some one person has to make the final decisions, yeah. somebody's not exactly on board with that. 
they understand, but you know, like anything else, you know, it's, it's not always perfect, but for the most part, you know, 95% of the time, I, you know, I've been, it's been incredible. It's been wonderful that I get to do what I love with people who I, who I love. Yeah. 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 I'm wondering if you can expand on creating your own work. I know we talked about this last week for a moment when we were on the phone. What are your views on going out there and creating your own um, work? You know, uh, it's something that I've always done. And so when I teach workshops and master classes, I always know that in my mind, when I'm talking to somebody, uh, you know, uh, some people, it's, they don't have that chip in their computer system. You know, the person who's, you know, the go-getter, who's willing to do the organizing, you know, I'm a, I'm a workaholic and I love creating things, always did. You know, I've been writing since I'm seven years old. So for me, it was always about, you know, and, and, and the key is, and I got great advice, don't try and do something that you think people would like. Do something that you're passionate about and hopefully people will like it. There's the key, you know. So uh, once again, you know, that's what I was saying for, you know, this was something that I really wanted to enjoy. But creating this show for me was uh, a blessing because at the beginning it was college students who were friends of mine and, and putting together and raising money and, and doing and, and basically if you're the one creating it, you're the one. It's either, you, you, you know, your fail or success rests with you. So there's no one else to really blame, you know, and I like that. I don't mind when things don't work out if I take a big swing and miss as long as it's something that I want to pursue. So I think there's a bit of fearlessness that you need to have at the beginning. Um, the fear of I don't care if people are going to judge me. I used to think, oh, my gosh, you know, at the beginning when I was doing this hundred years, when we were finally taken on tour. I was saying to myself, what is the rest of the industry going to think? Neil Burr's 100 years of Broadway. Are they going to think, you know, we, I didn't have a hit Broadway show at the time. And what, what, is, what are they going to think of me? And my collaborator said, you know, Neil, it's just a branding name. So no one could take your name. You're the one doing it. And the truth is that those most people don't care about you either way. So it, it, for me, it was it was more of a branding tool of getting my name on it so presenters and people could know the product. So if other people did it, they would know what the original one was. But you have to have thick skin because, you know, like I said, I was I was a little concerned at the beginning uh, because I, I wasn't sure what people would think about that. And the truth is you, you really can't think about those things. You have to do, you know, as long as you treat people well and treat people nice and do it the right way, uh, I think everything works out. So... As far as the the creation of something, look, we haven't even talked yet about you know what I love to do the most, which is to write musicals. Yeah, we're getting there. <laughs> and, and and but but it's all tied in, right? So, you know, my favorite quote is from Sondheim. Like I said, I'm a Sondheim fanatic. You know, uh, blank. You know, uh, it's from Sunday Park with George. You know, so many possibilities. You know, that blank canvas. Yeah. And what I I love to do and I've always recommended is I will actually book a space and a performance or a reading or a goal, you know, months in advance and I'll have nothing written yet. And that forces me. I need to be forced. Sometimes I'll force myself 
say, okay, I have a show coming up. Let's do something. So it forces it's self-creating an end line, a goal. And I'm in that. I think I work very well that way. I, I, you know, from, I guess maybe from my sports background, I like pressure. I, I, I love having to come up with the, you know, you know, in rehearsal, there's something that's not working. You know, the director says, go away and come up with something. I relish that. That's my favorite, favorite, favorite moments. Those really are, you know, because, you know, it's like a doctor. If you've gone to medical school and you've done all the work and the years and the toiling, you know, the labs, hopefully, you know, your, your craft as a doctor so you can go and treat your patients. I did, I think I did the work, you know, I, I went and I, I did BMI workshop and I did, you know, I studied very hard about the creations of musicals and how they created, you know, the, I want songs and the, every different type of way a, sh- a show is constructed. Yeah. So if you, if you, if you feel confident about what you're doing and have the tools by now, you know, I feel that's the fun part. I mean, the part I, I don't like the most is opening night pacing in the back, you know, you know, wondering what people think. That to me, and I think a lot of people agree with me who are creators. We love to create. That's the fun part. That's the good stuff. It's like being a, a chef, you know, in, in, it's like being a chop chef. You're getting all these ingredients. You don't know what you're making, but then you go in and you come up with something. Hopefully that's really delicious. And, uh, and hopefully you're doing it with an idea that you love and are passionate about. Yeah. What, you know, what is your, what was, or what is your journey to composing? From the first, from when I was a kid growing up, my mother, you know, basically was horrified when I quit the piano <laughs> at eight years, <laughs> at eight years old. Cause to yeah. her, every little Jewish, every little Jewish boy and girl should play a piano, you know, but God forbid they ever try and make their living at it. That was a, that's a different story. But, um, you know, we had a piano downstairs and my, my mother basically when I was 10 was, you know, bribed me with a dog, with a puppy dog and said, please take the piano again. And I did to get the puppy dog. And from the second I sat down, all I wanted to do was make up songs. And that's just the truth. I, I wanted to write, like I said, from the time I was seven or eight, I was writing short stories uh, on, on my father's old typewriter. And it was just, for me, the natural progression of putting words to music. Um, and then, you know, as I was growing up, it made sense. Not then, but my favorite albums, I was a rock guy. I, you know, I, I listened to some Broadway, but I was much more of a rock and roll guy. But my favorite albums were Quadrophenia by The Who, Land Lies Down on Broadway by Genesis, The Wall by Pink Floyd, Tommy by by The Who. It, it, there's no mistake there. All those have something in common. They were all rock operas. They all told story. Yeah. And so for me, you know, it's, when I went to college, and I, and I did, I performed in musicals in middle school. I wasn't allowed to do it in high school because I was forced to choose between baseball and the musical. They wouldn't let you do both as a spring activity. And I was not happy about that. But I, baseball was my life at that time. Mm-hmm. And when I went to college, you know, my friend bet me a bag of 
20, ba- 20 bags of oodles of noodles that I didn't have the, the balls to go and audition for the musical at uh, college at, at Binghamton University. And I wanted those oodles of noodles, you know, the ramen noodles. <laughs> yeah. And I'd written a song and I went in and I auditioned for Brigadoon. And lo and behold, I got in. Uh, my friend, who was a theater major, didn't. I got cast as fifth bread seller from the left. And my life, my life truly changed. Somebody came up to me and said, uh, you know, because I've been playing in all the talent shows and I've been studying classically. You know, I, I've been doing a lot of things. So it was, uh, you know, for me, uh, it was great because somebody came up and said, hey, would you write a musical? Um, and I said, sure. And I wrote my first musical in college. It was called Ghost Story. And I had some great mentors, uh, Bub- uh, Lofton Mitchell, who was the book writer of Bubble and Brown Sugar, an old Broadway show, Sue mm-hmm. Peters. And, and I started getting one-on-one work about how to write a musical because no one else in my university was doing it. And so I was, you know, it was an anomaly, but it was wonderful for me. And all of a sudden, uh, they decided to produce it at the university. And there I am, musical directing and writing and crafting my first musical. And then from there, I got asked by the professional theater. You know, this is all within the span of a year and a half. They liked my work, and they asked me if I would score some of their plays. So I scored Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are Dead and Trelawney of the Wells at the Cider Mill Playhouse in Endicott, New York. And I was, you know, 21 years old. And I said goodbye baseball, goodbye law school, goodbye everything else. And I really said, you know what? I want to write musicals. And if I'm going to write musicals, then I'm going to know more about writing musicals than anybody. (laughs) That was my mindset. And I started going to the library and I discovered Sondheim and I read through, you know, everything from Sweeney Todd to Pacific Overtures. I mean, I, I relished it. I loved it. It was, you know, an incredible place and time in my life and i had a wonderful mentor in sue peters and uh who was my teacher there at the at my college and when i got out i auditioned for bmi workshop and there i am working with skip kennan and maury Yeston and a lot of the guys from my years and around my years and now writing all the, the shows on broadway including bobby lopez and you know many of the others you know wow yeah that's it's amazing what where where life will take you you know going from the baseball law school to what seemed to be an obvious path of writing? Or was it not as obvious as it sounds? Well, it was obvious inside me. But when you grow up and you don't have a family that understands it, it's very difficult because you don't want to disappoint your parents. And, you know, they would not have paid for my schooling. I don't believe if I told them I wanted to major in music and musical theater it, it just wasn't in my reality at that time and i was a high school kid and i wasn't i don't think i knew for sure or even there was no way i thought that it was a possibility that you can make a living or a life in theater that was for other people that i didn't know you know i didn't have an uncle in the business or a friend in the business i didn't come from that world but um i will say that you know the sports background i think did help me in the fact of just the discipline and the i wasn't competitive with anybody else i was competitive with myself and i really wanted to do well if i was going to do this then i was going to take a big swing with that being said 
you know, obviously, you know, there's a thing called talent. And yes. people always told me I was talented. And, you know, I had a lot of that kind of support from mentors and friends. You just, you don't know what that really means, really. You, you, but ultimately, eventually, you have to find the confidence in yourself that what I write is only me. And that's, and it's, and it's good. You know, and that's it's really what, what happened. Yeah. Is there a project that taught you the most about yourself? <sighs> or one that comes to mind? <laughs> yeah, you know, there's, there's a few. I'll, I'll talk about this one. You know, when I got out of college, I had I, written a musical, uh, a second musical in college. And I was supposed to go to Broadway right out of my college years. I mean, it was ridiculous. Uh, it was yeah. one of those things, I, you know. And I didn't know anything or anybody. I just got out of school. I had the show. I went to somebody. Somebody loved it. He was an up-and-coming director at the time. And boom. And then everything fell apart. I mean, everything that could go wrong went wrong. And it was a great lesson. So uh, then, I, then I wrote a show that I thought was cool and hip and interesting. And I think I wrote it because it, I thought it was cool and hip and interesting but not because I ultimately loved or was passionate about the idea itself. I was trying to be cool. You know, what can I do to, to make my mark, uh, you know, to be different? Yeah. Um, and, and then I got somebody said, why don't you just write something? What are you passionate about? What do you love? What's the story that really resonated? And I remembered that my father and I, growing up in New York on WPIX, there was the Sunday movie, you know, uh, every Sunday the movie came on, an old-time movie. And I remember loving The Prince and the Pauper, which was what, you know, my father and I would watch it. And I love that story. And I said, you know what? This is something that I really love to do. You know, and lo and behold, I mean, I, you know, my, my shows before that, you know, were off, off Broadway. And I had, had a successful cabaret show. But Prince and the Pauper, I don't, I, I think there's a reason why it was the first one you know, notes to, to hit, you know, and it, we ended up doing it and it uh, was supposed to be, it was, it was basically supposed to be right after Christmas Carol. It was picked up by Madison Square Garden, who was getting into the Broadway game at that time. And then Madison Square Garden was doing Christmas Carol and they had picked up three shows and we were one of them, uh, original shows. And we were supposed to be, you know, a big show. And then they decided to buy shows. I'll be, I bet your listeners will remember this. They bought Saturday, Saturday Night Fever. They bought into Scarlet Pimpernel 2 or 3 and Footloose. <laughs> right. And Footloose. Because they just wanted to get into the commercial theater game right away. That was what Madison Square Garden wanted to do. And they were partners with Radio City. They, they owned the same building. And so it was an incredible process. There we are rehearsing and doing the show. And then all of a sudden, they come up to me and us, and they tell us, uh, guess what? Uh, Scarlet Pimpernel, Footloose, and Saturday Night Fever all bombed, and we're not doing musicals anymore. And I was like, are you kidding me? Uh, we were fortunate enough that the producer who brought us to Madison Square Garden, she was in charge of development, um, Carolyn Rossi Copeland, was going back to the Lambs Theater, and she said, let's do it there. And that's what we did. We cut it down from a big, majestic, epic musical of cast of 30 
and we did it Nicholas did Nickleby style, and that's where I learned everything really about commercial New York theater. You know, working with the, you know, going in and doing it the proper way. You know, uh, I should say we work with some incredible people who have become big stars now. You know, who are in our show, and it's a, uh, it was a fantastic experience. I mean, we were only able to have three musicians. And we had to dummy down the show a little bit because it went into more of the, you know, family. I won't say it wasn't kids theater, but they, the producer definitely wanted more of the Christmas Carol vibe. And we had originally written it more like Oliver. There was some really dark, there was darkness to it. And, uh, but we got a great review in the New York Times and it ran for a couple of seasons. And, you know, it was, I learned a lot. So I think that one was the best one, yeah. especially about being passionate about being passionate about what you want to do and, and writing stories that you really like. Yeah. Well, this is really interesting. Okay. So correct me if I correct me if I'm wrong. You had the one show that you thought were going to go to Broadway, everything that could go wrong went wrong. And then you had this next one purchased by Madison Square Garden that you had to then work the more traditional route because they dropped it with the other three with this sounds very um very much like you just kept innovating and kept the positivity going and not giving up you know and i'm curious was there moments in time where you had to talk to yourself about that or was it a just oh no this is what i'm doing so we're just going to keep on moving here until we get what we're supposed to get done done it's a great it's a great question um and so this is going to sound i i don't mean to sound harsh here i was all in I, I, I made the decision that I was doing this for my life and I see so many people and I knew so many people who said, you know, I'll do this till I'm 25. I'll do this till I'm 30. I'll do this until, you know, and I used to see people get frustrated and drop out. And this is going to sound horrible. I don't mean it to. I was like, good. Okay. Bye. Because yeah. I, I understood it. I, I understood it. That was their choice. They they chose to, to get out of it. I, I that was never, I, I had to do it. I had to do it. And I know so many friends and colleagues of mine are the same way. So the talks were, okay, here's another obstacle. How am I going to get around it? I was always a problem solver. And once again, I don't know if they teach you that in school. Either you, you, you know, how do you get yourself to not get depressed and, you know, give up? Um, and I think it's about value. If you value the work that you're doing and you think it's really right, then you just got to keep going until you feel, you know, figure it out and get around these obstacles. Most of the obstacles that happened had nothing to do with the work itself. No one was saying this, this shows a piece of garbage. Yeah. You know, that I think helped a lot too. It wasn't that. It was more of, you know, roadblocks. You know, I've had producers promise to do shows and all of a sudden they get sick. You know, I've had producers promise to do shows and they get fired from the theater they're working at. And so now there's no theater to do the show at. And, And as we all know, then it's another two years sometimes to get on somebody else's schedule. So I really think, and I mean this Clay, I mean this so much. You gotta love the journey. I love the journey. I love going out for coffee with people. I love hanging out. I, I. It's not just about being in a rehearsal and getting your show done. That's the ultimate end goal. 
I love everything else that goes with it. I really do. And uh, I think if you think of it as a journey, as one journey, instead of just successes and failures along the way, I, I at least that's how maybe I've trained myself to deal with this business. But it's worked. And, uh, you know, ultimately, you know, I, it, 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 I was able to become successful to make a living doing what I love. Yeah, we're hitting some really great stuff here because, no, it's not taught in school. <laughs> How to pick yourself up when something doesn't work and when, you know, uh, what we consider to be a failure strikes, how to innovate or you die. And it's that's not necessarily taught. So I really appreciate you sharing these nuggets of information because that's what it's all about. It's about picking yourself up when something doesn't go right because it is about the journey. It's not just well, one place exactly and and i always tell people while you're going out there and trying to do something self-create yourself self-produce I, I mean i love these theater companies i see in central park that are using a rock as their theater they go there you know in sundays i forget what the name of the company is but they're doing shakespeare by the rock well how brilliant is that you know shakespeare you know it doesn't cost anything it just needs one person to motivate i love the fact that you a, a working actor starts up and does your own podcast. You are, you know, it, 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 I just wish more people, you know, had the ability to do that. And yeah. not everybody does. And that's, and so I don't, I don't look down or frown upon people who can't do it or don't do it. I just realized that not everybody has, as I said, that chip in their computer, you know, so you, that's why I think you need a good support system around you yeah. do. And, and you need people who can tell you, yes, how good you are, but they also can kick your ass and get you out of feeling self-pity and, and get off your butt again and go and do it and realize, you know, the only way you get things done. Okay. You know, I, you know, everyone, you know not everyone, but the people who have a wonderful, I love agents. Okay. But we all know that it's not the agent who gets you your work. Right. It's the relationships. It's, you know, I say if you're on your couch at night, then you're not doing your job. Your job is to be, you know, especially young performers. If they're sitting around, part of the job is to be out and getting into like with like-minded people and getting yourself out there. Yes, the networking doesn't have to be forced, you know, but get put yourself in situations so, you, you know, you're able to you know, create your own luck and space. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying anything that most people don't know already, but I, maybe just by reinforcing it and saying how well it worked for me. Yeah. You know, I, have, I, have, I have friends of mine who say all the time, oh, but Neil, you're very social. You know, you're really good at the, the game. I said, what are you talking about the game? I, I don't think I've ever once gone to a party to meet people not that there's anything wrong with that as Seinfeld said you know there's nothing wrong with that but when I'm in you know but I'm always out doing something that I love which is usually in theater or sports <laughs> or with my family yeah. and when I'm there I'm talking to people because I'm a people person and I, I like to talk and that's I think that's the point is that you get yourself and put yourself in positions Yes, because and I I agree with you completely. I don't I don't go to a party and think, okay, this is the game. Time to turn on my game face. It's just socializing, being friendly, being kind. Yeah. 
And you're right. It's all about getting out at night to be put yourself in situations and create your own luck. Yes, people have heard this before. I think the way you're you're articulating it though is uh, is different and helpful. I think it's good to always reinforce these thoughts. Um, curious uh, morning routine. The way you, in which you start your day is it very? Is it similar? <coughs> it's great. Uh, you know, I'm. I've always. It, it, it's. I try. I try. So when I'm good and I'm very routine oriented, meaning that I'll get up and I'll get to the gym, which wakes you up. And then, uh, you know, I'll always sit down at the piano. Always. Once a day, I'll sit down at the piano uh, to see if something happens, you know, for, uh, musically or, or from a, uh, you know, writing a song. But for me, much easier is... Uh, I think when I'm writing a musical, the routine of that. So let's say, because, because there's different things, right? So if I'm writing a musical, that to me is the easiest when I'm setting with a, a collaborator because you're on schedule immediately and you're setting deadlines and goals. So if you get, and you're doing it long distance, it's one thing, but you could say, hey, let's make sure, to, you know, by Tuesday, you know, uh, I'm going to send you something. Well, then I am at that piano and I'm working until I have something because I don't want to let my collaborator down. And that's, I just can't do that. So there, once again, self-imposed deadlines and goals helps on a personal level. Yes. I try and, you know, get up every day and go, and go to the gym if I can to get myself, my body working. And at least once a day, I'm at the piano to make sure I'm writing and uh, but it's not like I get to the piano every day at one o'clock. I have friends of mine. I'm writing a show right now with one of the greatest writers in the world, Robert Schenken. Robert Schenken, you know, who won the Tony and Pulitzer, you know, uh, all the way and Hacksaw Ridge and Kentucky Cycle. So we're writing a musical right now. And uh, I get inspired, you know, watching his process because he's a writer who gets up every day and goes to his desk for three hours and every day for three hours he writes he it's his job that's what he does i don't you know i don't know if i could do that unless i had a project but you know and then I'll, and then i could be there for hours at a time i could be there for 10 hours and it goes by in two seconds if i'm working on something but i always do try and get to the piano at least to put my hands on it and to see what comes up. And sometimes it'll last for half an hour and sometimes it'll last for 10 hours. And it's, uh, but I, I think what you're asking is routine wise, I want to make sure I'm at the piano at least once a day. So the answer is yes, I do that. Do you have a uh, work life balance between, you know, like some scheduling some downtime to clear your brain or uh, not so much? Yeah, I like to sleep. I do. Um, <laughs> so it's when you sleep. <laughs> but, yeah, but but my, my you know my wife and my son will tell you I have a fourteen year old son. So when I'm off the road now, it's, it's all about them. It's all about them. But they understand if I'm working on a project. But I'll do it hopefully when he's in school. But sometimes you know I get my inspiration at night, and I have a little studio downstairs that I can go to and work. But yeah, I mean in my in my own way, there's nothing more important than my family. That's one, right? I guess myself, you know, right underneath that, 
but you know, I was trained by my father, my family first, you know, then me take care of myself to make sure I'm there for my family. Yeah. Uh, my wife reminds me that a lot and she has to, because it's important. I, I take that seriously, but, um, you know, my friends, uh, you know, I have a lot of different friend groups because of all the different things I've done. Yeah. So I, I, if, if somebody calls me and says, Neil, let's grab a, a coffee or something. If I'm not doing anything, I'm there. I I treasure, I relish, I value my friendships in those times with the people I love. But, you know, in, in, and I will make those calls as well. Yes. But um, the balance of time for me is I need, I have a eclectic crazy schedule because, and it's not always the same. So when I'm writing a show, when I'm in rehearsal for a show, that always takes precedence. So let me start there. You know, if I have a deadline, I know I'm going into rehearsal. I just did Grumpy Old Men. And, uh, you know, and that was a, you know, a massive show with, you know, it's now it's going to be going on national tour. And, we, you know, we, so my wife and son know that if I'm in the middle of that process, they are very giving to me to make sure I have enough time, you know, to do what I need to do. And I'm very uber aware that at the time I'm not doing it I'm with them. So that's first and foremost, if I'm doing a show. But what's interesting is I also at night when they go to sleep, I love researching for my concerts. I love it. So for example, the 50 years of, of rock and roll show I'm doing, um, we did part one, which is basically rock and roll 101. All right, Chuck Barry, Elvis, the Beatles, but I wanted it to be great. So I researched it and did all that. And while it was so successful, the theaters called, you know, want me to do part two and then part three. Now I'm on part four. So I will go up and I will you know, go onto the computer and I will do my research on my own time and try and do that. And I'll be up sometimes till four in the morning in the blink of an eye. And I have a very, the one thing my wife gives me, <laughs> which I'm very grateful for, is that she usually gets up with our son you know, for breakfast and I'm, you know, when I'm around, I'm there when he comes back and we're there spending dinner and family time and he loves sports and we do the whole sports thing. So it's, it's a delicate balance, but you need to do it. But it's, I won't say I've ever been that regimented, you know, like some of the people I know are it's, it depends what day it is and what's going on, you know, in my life, you know, if I have a new show coming up. I hope that answers the question. <laughs> yes, it does. No, it definitely does. It's you're right. You're absolutely right. Uh, time will <laughs> fleet when you're right in the heat of something. So I can understand that. But it's also trying to find the balance of family, which is interesting. You know, within myself, that's why I ask because it's always trying to. You know, what's the downtime? What's the uptime? Or you know, how, however anyone would schedule it. So thank you, thank you for that. Um, as we wrap up here, I'm curious in life. What is most important to you? Oh, I mean, that's, I think I just said it. I mean, this, yeah. you know, family, families, you know, your, your family, you know, your, your, you know, for me, it's my wife, my son, my, my, other, you know, my mother and brother and sister and, and, and the family and friends that are closest to me uh, are by, are by far the most important thing uh, without a doubt. Um, you know, 
I, I, you know, there it is. I mean, the work, everything else, it was kind of drilled into me by my father a long time ago. When when I was single, I I got married, you know, uh, a little later than most. I was 35 when I got married. And when I was trying to make it, I didn't care about, you know, myself as much and it was about work and trying to make it and trying to do those things. You know, I was trying to establish and trying to do great work and doing as much work as I can. That was what that time. Once you have a family, as anybody who has a family and loves them knows, it all changes. It's not about you anymore. And uh, it, it made me really get on point. So it, 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 it made me focus more on ways that I could really do what I love to do the most, but yet still find a way to support them. And I I don't think there's any mistake that my career took off when I started having a family. I mean, really took off. I had that support, that desire, that drive, that love, that commitment, that focus, that hyper focus um, to give my family the best life they could. I, I could doing what I love. And my wife, She's an actress. She understands it. I got incredible support. She always told me, you know, do what you love. You're great. You're going to do it. You know, it, it, it's so helpful. I'm just so lucky, you know. Uh, and it's not easy. Anybody who has a relationship in this business and marries somebody in the business. But when it works, the understanding that's there, it, this. It, it, it's unbelievable because they know what you're going through. So I'm so, you know, I, I love my wife so much, you know, so Rita yeah. Harvey, I love you. And my son, Lucas, you know, I love you. So it's all for them. All the other stuff is, is great. You know, I love it's, it's, you know, I want to be successful. I want to write great things. Hopefully people love it. That's all way, way below it. Right. Right. Yeah, that. Yeah. I mean, yes, that that's an interesting there. You brought up an interesting point, though, that it took off with family, um, because I know there's a myth that you can either have the career or have the family, but you can't have both. Now, I don't think you've heard that one in a while, but <laughs> it flows. Well, around. you know, it was the op- it, to me, it was the opposite. Or, you know, maybe look, I was I was planting the seeds during that whole time. Yeah. So I think it was a combination. Let's be realistic. It's not sure. one or the other. It's probably a combination. No. But. I was I was I was planting the seeds, but there's no doubt that I felt like I could do anything, you know, when I had the support of my family behind me who loved me unconditionally. Really. Yeah. yeah. And that's absolutely beautiful. I uh, well, uh final final question here. Metaphorically sure. speaking, if you could put a word or a phrase on a billboard for millions of people to see, does anything come to mind? I tell my son all the time, so it's easy for me. Never be outworked. Never be outworked. You know, for me, people have more talent than you. But you can control how hard you work. Never be outworked. It's something, you know, you could be the slowest guy on the team. But you can work harder than anybody. And I always felt that that helped me a great deal. And I, I try to pass that on to my son. You know, you hear about the underachievers, overachievers. Uh, I just, 
you know, even, <laughs> even, you know, pursuing my wife, you know, it, it's not just in your work, it's in life. Never be out work. Never, you know, if you want something and I, I'll always preface it by, I, I, I really do believe I, I want to believe that I did it the right way with kindness, with thought process, with understanding and respect, you know, th those are important because, you know, God forbid, you know, it's not about just the win. I'm sorry. I, it's not, you know, it's not about just winning. It's about how you win. And, uh, you know, um, and I think never being outworked and doing it the right way. So, yeah, I think I like that. Maybe I'll get some t-shirts. Yeah, I like it. That's going to be the title of the episode. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Neil, Neil, thank you so much for taking this time today. I really appreciate uh, your insight and your willingness to open up and share how you think. Because I think, you know, the actions and we can read articles and we can see what you've done, your resume and blah, blah, blah. But to understand where it all comes from uh, at its core, I think is very educational. So I appreciate you sharing it. Well, I, I, I thank you very much for that. And, uh, you know, congrats on everything you're doing. And uh, I, I think these podcasts are terrific. So congratulations on all you're doing as well. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Real pleasure. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, Neil Berg. You've been listening to Entertainment X, the podcast. You can follow Entertainment X on Instagram at underscore Entertainment X underscore. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join Clay next week for another curiosity conversation on Entertainment X. Thank you for listening. 